Welcome to Great Minds, the podcast. I'm Matt Schechner, your host, and today is an extraordinary treat. With us is the star of the, I think we can call it the best show on television. I think we can. Well, uh, the best comedy on The best television. comedy on yeah. television. With me today is Susie Essman, star of Curb Your Enthusiasm, now in the midst of season 10 on HBO and throughout the world. Welcome, Susie. Is it the funniest show in the history? Funniest comedy in the history of well, television? It's up there. Certainly the last 20 years. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and uh, we'll talk about how you and Larry got together. Okay. And But yeah, I'm going to put you right at the top okay. uh, of my list. And uh, But let's, let's go back. And I want to start not at the very beginning, but I want to go back to January of 1989 and your first appearance on The Tonight Show. Okay, this next young lady. Oh my God, that was a horror. This uh, next young lady is a young actress and comedian. She's in a new NBC series called Baby Boom. She started as a stand-up comedian, appears frequently at a place called Catch a Rising Star in New York. This is her first time with us. Would you welcome Susie Essman. Susie? Well, I, I was in the middle of doing a... I was on a series called Baby Boom on NBC, which was based on the... The movie, uh, Charles Shire and Nancy Myers wrote the movie, and then they made a series. So how's Baby Boom doing? Is that your first? That's not your first TV, is it? It's my first series, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's fun. I like it. It's fun because I get to um, work with all the cute crew guys. Yeah. And I have, like, people from elementary school watching me. All my ex-boyfriends watching me and wanting me and knowing they could never have me. Really? You have a lot of ex-boyfriends? So they had me on The Tonight Show as one of the NBC little ingenues. You know, not as a comic. I did panel. And um, Johnny wasn't expecting that. He, was, he wasn't expecting me to be a comedian. He didn't know I was a stand-up. He was expecting me to be the new little NBC actress that he was doing them a favor to have on to push the show. Right. So it, it just, nothing about it went well. It, it was like awkward. I, I, my material was off. I had, you know, I mean, I was new in the business. I was a newbie. Right, I started right. in 1984. And in, in comedy business, five years is nothing. Right. You know, um, and it, it was just, it was a horrible experience. And the, the most scared I've ever been in my life to do anything. Because it was live television or because it was no, Johnny? No, because it was Johnny. Because yeah. that's what I grew up with. Yeah. I remember being backstage and there was, in the green room, there was no moisture in my mouth whatsoever. It's the only time I've ever experienced that. I mean, nothing was coming out of my mouth. It was horrifying. And David Steinberg was also on The Comedian, who is now one of my closest friends, but at that time I didn't know him. But he was incredibly gracious and kind to me because he saw what a wreck I was. However, the positive side is I did Johnny before he retired. Right. And I I did panel, which is a major thing for a comic. You know, comics always, did you do panel? You did stand-up. Did did you do panel? Right. That was a very big deal to get on The Tonight Show with Johnny. It really was. Yeah was not a good experience and and even with him i remember just looking into his eyes and it was just ice steel cold blue eyes like just cold there was nothing there i could connect to in any Mm. way just cold and not what I thought all those years when I would stay up late to watch him to right. watch Rickles you know my right. brother and I used to like Rickles was on that was it we stayed up late and watched sure. Rickles all through high school um, but it, it wasn't that that guy was not there not for me at least 
Interesting. Now, I was listening the other day to a, a Rickles album from 68 in the yeah. Sahara in Vegas, and none of the jokes that he told could be you could tell used today. now. No. What's no. your take on where culture is right now and the line, what used to be comedy was sort of a safe space? Yeah. And seems less so now. I, I am glad I'm not coming up now in the world of comedy. I'm glad I don't do clubs anymore. Because it used to be, when I, I started in 19, 1983, really 1984, and that was the comedy boom time, the, the 80s, when comedy was king in New York City. And there'd be round, uh, lines around the block every night, not just Saturday, every night, a Catch a Rising Star and the comic strip. Um, and it was private. Yeah. You were in this dark, dirty, smoky, there was a lot of cigarette smoke right. room, and it felt private. It felt like you could push the envelope and you could say whatever you wanted to say. And you knew if you went over the line and you pulled yourself back a little, you know, you had your internal little thing going up your spine, which told you when you went too far. But you could try things and you could experiment and grow and figure out who you were as a comedian. It takes a really long time as a stand-up to really figure out who you are as a comic and what your persona is and what your voice is. And you were able to do that in those days. Nobody had phones. Nobody was recording. Nobody was tweeting. I've heard you use that expression, find your voice. Yeah. What do you mean by that? You know, people don't understand about stand-up that it's different than just being funny. It's different than doing sketch comedy or improv comedy. It's different. You know, people come up to me all the time and they'll be like, I killed at my, you know, I gave the toast at my at my brother's wedding and I killed. I, I should do stand-up. It's a completely different thing than right, that. Right. You know, you're you're on stage to complete strangers, trying to make them laugh. And when you're working in clubs, you gotta get a laugh every 20 seconds minimum. Right. 30 seconds, you're really pushing it. You know, so you got to be like, laugh, 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 laugh. And you have to know who you are. The audience has to, has to come to you and relate to you in some kind of way. You, there, there has to be a voice that, that, that's your own, that's original, that differentiates you from everybody else out there. It's not just about the jokes. It's more about, to me, it was always more about persona than anything. And your persona which you've shaped and honed brilliantly i mean you have such a distinctive way about everything you do on camera live uh when did that voice when how young were you when that voice started to appear we met once but you won't remember because you weren't trying to sleep with me and you know that's because i'm not your type it's okay because you know i'm smart my tits are real and i speak english When when did you? I was think, always funny. I'm pretty funny. And when did you think, hey, this might be something I'd like to do over time? Well, that's a long. That, I have a long answer for that. We got nothing but time. Okay. As a little kid, I remember as a as a very little kid, you know, maybe three, being aware of the fact that I was funny. I was just naturally funny, which you just either are or you're not. You're funny. And neither you your know. parents, I mean, your dad was a doctor. You, yeah. You know, neither, there was no entertainment in your family. Well, there was say. plenty of entertainment, just not comedy. I mean, right. my uncle was a, a director and my, okay. my great-grandfather was the empresario of the Russian Grand Opera Company. And they wow. were all opera singers and ballet dancers and musicians, but not comedy. And your heritage was both Russian and Polish, right? 
uh, uh, Ukrainian. Ukrainian. Russian okay. and Ukrainian. Um, my grandmother might have been Polish, but it was one of the, it was unclear. Yeah, it was you know who knew right. what they were. Right. They were in the pale. Right. They were in the shtetl and the pale. Right. And then one day it was Poland. The next day it was the, you know Germany. The next day they didn't know what they were. Um, they were Jews. That's what they were. We know that. <laughs> yeah, that we know. So I remember as a kid being aware of the fact that when you're funny, people respond to you in a positive way and like you. Right. And that there's a power there that can be used. It wasn't that conscious as a kid, but there was some vague kind of sense that when you're funny, you could use that in, in your in your emotional intelligence that, that helps you survive the world around you. And I did not have good, you know, parents. I mean, I didn't have parents that loved me and supported me. And, you know, I basically raised myself. Right. I was raised by wolves, more or less. Right. So, um, And I've heard you say your mom did not think you were funny. No, didn't think I was funny at all. All those things that everybody else in the world responded to me about, she didn't like about me. That I had friends and that people thought I was funny and liked me. She hated all that about me. And that me. had to stay with you for a while. And that... Yeah, you know, to, to this very day, I would <laughs> yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of years on the couch to yeah, deal exactly, with. Exactly. So, so I knew that I had that that quality. And then when I was five years old, it was 1960. My parents got the 2000 year old man album, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. Sure. And I used to listen to that album over and over and over again. Now, in retrospect, knowing the album as well as I do, I couldn't have gotten those jokes at right, five. Right, You know, I mean, there was so much sexual innuendo, but I knew by the rhythm of it that it was funny. I could tell by the timing of it that it was funny. And I used to stand on the kitchen table and I would recite the entire album, wow. both parts, Carl and Mel. Wow. And my brother, when I got a little bit older, maybe nine, 10, my brother was five years old and then he used to come home after school with all his friends and they used to say, get your sister in here to entertain us. And I would stand up on the kitchen counter and I would do song parodies. I would pull, you know, cans of peas out of the cabinet and do fake commercials. And, I, you know, so I knew that I was funny. At little, I, I realized years later that they were all stoned. They'd come home and smoke pot okay. and then get me okay. in there to entertain them. But it, but it was just like a, my whole life I knew that I was funny. So the the voice, you know, and then as a girl... You reach puberty and adolescence, and that all goes away. All of a sudden, you're focused on boys. You're funny with your girlfriends, but not in front of the boys. Okay. It becomes a completely different thing. And then I went to college. I was intimidated by all the acting people. You went to Purchase? SUNY Purchase. I was an urban studies major. I didn't do any comedy, any theater, nothing. I got out. I started taking acting classes. It was weird to me, the acting classes. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It was boring. I never had it in my head that I was going to do stand-up. Because when I was growing up, I'd watch these stand-up comics on Ed Sullivan every Sunday night. Who'd you watch? Every Who Sunday. do you remember? I remember Alan King, Jackie Mason, Joan Rivers, Phyllis Diller, uh, Stiller and Mira, um, uh, 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 Jackie Vernon, um, okay. you know, on and on and on, all of them. I didn't connect to that, what they were doing. I didn't connect to that set-up, punch, jokey thing that they were doing at all. It just didn't, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't realize what it was. I, I didn't understand it. Um, and then in 1983, I was in a very bad place. Horrible relationship, waitressing, lost, deep depression. Friends of mine forced me to get on stage to do stand-up. And I did. 
And there were these two guys. It was at a, a place on Carmine Street called Mostly Magic. They had an open mic night, Tuesday nights. It was July 18th, 1983, I think. And uh, there were these two guys there, Paul Herzog and Bert Levitt, who came up to me afterwards. I did three minutes. I had five minutes, but I did it so fast it was in three because I was a nervous wreck. And I just did characters. I would do all these characters that I would, when I was waitressing all those years, I would go back into the kitchen. I would make fun of all the customers doing these characters to make the job fun and bearable to myself. And those are the people that I waitressed with that kind of forced me to get on stage. They were like, you're funny. Do this, do this. Do you remember any of those bits? Yeah, I do. Let's hear one. one. I'm not doing it. No, it was, you know, I did like the Puerto Rican character who was, President of the Menudo fan club and like, okay. all the, you know, whatever. Okay. I did my grandmother, you know, the same characters. Which you've, I, which you've kept in the act of uh, course. over the years. Um, but so these guys said, it came up to me afterwards. They said, we're opening a comedy club. We want you to come work. We think you're really funny. I thought they were crazy. I was like, yeah, yeah, here's my number. Never got on stage again. About four months later, they called me and said, we opened the club. Can you come down here and do 10 minutes? And me being an, an idiot said, yes, 10 minutes is like a huge amount of time. I didn't have 10 minutes, but I wrote it and I went down and I did it. And they liked me. They kept on bringing me back. Who helped you when you go back and go back to the down like mid 80s, roughly? Who said, boy, that they really were kind to me. Uh, there was a few people. I mean, Joy was a huge influence on me because I was 28 by this time. I was already old, but she was 40 and just starting. Okay. And so she was already, you know, she was she had a kid and, you know, her life was completely different from mine. And she really influenced me because I saw how she was off stage and how she was on stage and it was the same. Okay. And I thought, okay. The way that I am sitting around with my girlfriends at the kitchen table, that's what I have to bring to the stage. And it's not easy to do. You know, you think just be yourself. It's not that easy to do. And that took me a few years to figure out. And then Richard Belzer asked me to open for him at Caroline's. This is when Caroline's was a headline club. Right. And they were on 8th Avenue and 28th Street. Mm -hmm. And he asked me to open for him. And then Caroline saw me and asked me to open for Gilbert. Okay. So then I opened for Gilbert. And Jerry Seinfeld saw me open for Gilbert and then asked me to open for him. So then I opened for Jerry. And that was very early on in my career. But those kinds of things like got people noticing me and I started to get a little cachet. And when did you first perform out of New York? Because all this was in New York. When did you first? I don't remember exactly, but I do remember early on, maybe... So let's say, let's say they saw me in 1983. And so I started in 1984, really. It was after I started doing stand-up for about three months that I said to myself, this is exactly what I was born to do. You look like my ex-boyfriend. He dumped on me, though. Do you feel bad? <laughs> no, uh, don't, because he's dead now, okay? And, um... <laughs> I ran into him recently. Maybe 1986 or something, I got a gig in Atlantic City. Okay. And I took the bus to Atlantic City. Was there a gaming there yet or not yet? Yes, I think. I'm not sure. I think. And I took the bus to Atlantic City and I remember thinking, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to Atlantic City and I'm going to be doing stand. I'm I'm a comedian. I'm a working comedian in Atlantic City. It like struck me. One of the earliest things when I opened for Gilbert at Caroline's, I remember she used to have these posters, Caroline, 
of, of the headliner mm-hmm. plastered all across the city. And I remember being down in the village and I saw a picture of Gilbert and underneath it said opening act Susie Essman. And I remember that moment, the thrill of that was like, I'm really a comedian now. And and you weren't your mom wasn't really there for you. Who were you close with? Who was who did you call and you know and you, you had to share friends, something like my that. My friends, nobody right. in my family. People like Joy and others. Joy or no my 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 your, late your regular people, friends. Yeah, my regular friends. My friend right. Jane. My uh, my friend Pete. My my my, my good. But friends. that must have been incredible when you yeah. saw your name up there on a billboard. Yeah, it was incredible, and that was I had only been doing it maybe six eight months. Right. Which in comedy time is nothing, nothing. And then around 1986, 87 is when I really started to get good. But you have to understand, I would be on stage every single night and on the weekends, seven, eight times a night. Wow. Running around to clubs. And I remember one year, I used to write down every set I did and keep track of it. And I remember one year, probably 86 or 87, I did 400 shows in one year. Yeah, I don't think the average person out there understands how difficult and how hard stand-ups work early in their career oh, yeah. to get there. And you can't you can't do it in front of the mirror. You can't do it in a class. I took a class early on, but that was just a safety net. You have to do it in front of an audience. So you're up in front of a live audience, not knowing what you're doing because you don't have the experience or the technique because how can you unless you've done it? And, you know, you're facing complete and utter humiliation. But I do think that all comics, there's a piece of them that has to believe in how good they are. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it because you are facing humiliation. Right. And what's worse than humiliation? Nothing. And and it's an odd mix of emotion because you have to have confidence to get up there. That's but right. at the same time, you're nervous. And, and you know I suffer from stage fright. I suffer horribly. I always did suffer from stage fright. But I, I always knew I was a good comic. And there was a time when I was a great comic. Not anymore. I'm out of shape. But there was a time when I was a great comic. Now, when you get up there, does the stage fright go away? Gone. The minute I'm on stage. It's not there at all. Right. But before? Before, I'm a wreck. Right. I'm a and wreck. I, I've seen that pre-show yeah. wreck. Yeah. It's yeah. not pretty. My right. poor husband. Poor Jimmy. Poor Jimmy. <laughs> so you're starting to work. You're gaining momentum. Yeah. Things are rolling along really well. And I'm getting good. I'm figuring out... Who And, you know, I, I stopped doing the characters. I used to just do characters. I never spoke in my own voice. Then I realized if I'm going to get anywhere, I have to figure out who I am. And I started uh, speaking, emceeing. I emceed at Catch all the time. And I'd work the crowd and I'd figure out. It wasn't a conscious thing of figuring out. I wouldn't go home and saying, okay, this is who I am on stage. It was a very internalized, organic thing that just became a part of who I but was. But crowd work became a very big part of your yes, act. Yes, but, but crowd work didn't come naturally to me. I learned how to do that. It's natural to me now. I mean, right. now it's so easy for me. Right. Um, although, you know, I haven't been on stage in so long right now that it all feels foreign. Right. It's amazing how well, foreign it feels. We're not, we're not playing any violins. Things yeah. are going pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> so now we're in the late 80s. We're working stand-up. What was the next leap for you? Well, the next leap took a really long time. Um, so then I start. I started becoming no, known as a comic, and I started working a lot and making more money. But you can't really make money until you're on TV. 
So at the time in the 80s, there was a million stand-up shows on TV. I don't know if you remember Evening at the Improv, uh, uh, Stand-Up Spotlight. There was a million shows that were exploiting comedians, basically. You know, they'd give you bullshit money, like 2500 bucks, and then they owned it and could air it in perpetuity. Yeah, no rights to anything. No rights to anything. But you kind of had to do it. You know, you kind of had to do these five, seven-minute sets, which were never my forte. Because it's, you know how I work. It's just not my thing. You know, they were great for uh, comics who were like jokey, set a punch, set a punch. But for me, who was all over the place, it wasn't really great. But I did a million of them. Uh, so you're, you're on TV. You're starting to build a reputation. I had, then I, I did Baby Boom, a series. I started making a little bit of money, not much. But it wasn't really happening. And always living here out of New York. Always living in New York. Never moved to LA. We shot Baby Boom in LA. I went there for that, but didn't move. Uh, I did all my friends, so many of the people that I came up with moved to L.A. in the late 80s, early 90s. A lot of them never to be heard from again. Some did great. Larry David uh, did fantastic. Sure. Who you first met is it when he was doing stand-up? I met stand-up. him in 1986 when at he was Catch a Rising Star. Yeah, okay. doing stand-up. All right. Um, which we could get yeah, back we'll to come after. Yeah, back, we'll come back so, to Larry. So, uh, you know, I did an HBO. I did two HBO specials. I did a, a, a Women of the Night special with a bunch of other women. Then I did a one-night stand special, my own half hour. I think that was 1992. And who then did you, when you said... You know, not that you were emulating anybody because you had you very much had your own voice. But who out? Who did you think was funny? Who did you like to see or be on a show with? Um, at that time, the I did em, the person I emulated, which will sound odd, but not really was Pryor. Okay. To me, Pryor was what I wanted to be. Roll the window up, dear. <laughs> it's just a rabbit. Fuck you. There ain't no rabbit ever looked at me like that. And you see a lion in the jungle, that's what they look like, lions. Motherfucker be in the bush, dumbass. Yeah, get your ass out the car. Because Pryor, I think, was the greatest stand-up that ever lived in, in, of that generation. You know, diff- completely different than a, a Rickles or, or somebody like that. Pryor had everything that I wanted as a stand-up. Complete and total accessibility, vulnerability. He ripped his heart open. He, he had no, you know, he, he just exposed himself. He did characters. He told stories. He had jokes. He was just so naturally funny. He was everything I wanted to ever be as a comic. Everything. So he was the person that I aspired to be, really. Um, the people working, I mean, I, they were all my friends. Everybody was so funny. Every, we were just all funny. We all, and we would all hang out and, all night. And pretty supportive of each other? Very supportive of each other. We'd all hang out all night. At the end of the night, you'd end up at either Catch or the comic strip. And then we'd go to the diner till like four o'clock in the right. morning. And, you know, right. then the next day you'd lie in bed like you couldn't even move because I'd done seven so- shows the night before. And this is before we had cell phones. So you're running around the city trying to make your time, you know, downtown, uptown, across town, whatever. And y- there's no way to communicate. And there's, there's no Uber. There's not, you know, there's nothing but somehow you got there somehow we got around right. we did it right. we did it um and but, so tv starts to happen so tv for you. starts to happen but nothing really and i remember by the the late 90s and i was making a decent living you know not anything crazy but i was making enough money and i and i was doing a lot of but uh, living on your own paying your own bills yeah no living yeah. on my own paying my own bills since 1985 basically i mean right. oh no actually 
from the get-go. Nobody ever paid for anything. Right. Um, Were you doing anything else at that? No, just stand-up. Or acting work or voiceover work, you know, just, yeah, all that. Um, After, I I quit waitressing in 1985. So since then, I made my living as a stand-up. Gotcha. And, uh, you know, by the late 90s, I remember feeling so frustrated because I was killing every show I did. And I was thinking, I don't know how much better I have to be to, to break through in this business. Right. I just wasn't getting a break. And it was just really, really In the late 90s, by then you're mid-30s? Yeah, no, older. Yeah. Older. And I was frustrated. And uh, I was just really frustrated at that point. And then Larry David called me. Tell us about that first phone call. You knew Larry from stand-up. I knew Larry from years earlier doing stand-up. And then he moved to L.A., to okay. do Seinfeld. I hadn't heard from him in years. Um, we were always friendly, you know, not close friends, but always friendly at the right. bar. And he thought I was funny. I remember a couple of times he complimented stuff, which you know, it was interesting because that was before Larry was Larry. Right. You know, he was, uh, but but he, you always wanted him to think you were funny and it, you cared about what he thought because he was so clearly brilliant. We'd all go in the room to watch him doing stand up because his stand up was brilliant, but the audience would just stare at him like they had no idea what they were talking, what he was talking about. And that, the legend that he would sometimes look at the audience and say, That's true. and walk off is true. He would he would get up on stage sometimes and just be, I don't think so, and then walk off. Or when, like I emceed a lot, so there was always that moment. And when you emceed, different people would have a different time slot. Like somebody would have a 15-minute time slot, let's say, right. or a 20-minute time slot. And as an MC, you bring somebody on, and then you go hang out at the bar or go to the bathroom or whatever. You're not sitting in the room necessarily. Whenever I would announce Larry, I would say, ladies and gentlemen, Larry David. And I would be walking off and he would be walking on and he would always whisper in my ear, stay close. Right. Because you never knew when right. he was going to storm. So one woman is looking at her watch. He storms off. Right. You know, I mean, you right. never knew when he was going to storm off. But his material was brilliant. So the other comedians all really we respected all and revered him. him. We all watched him because for two reasons. His material was brilliant and you never knew what was going to happen. Okay. If he was going to be crazy and make a scene. I remember one night he's doing some bit. I forgot what it was. And something came up about a bungalow. Maybe it was about a bungalow colony. I don't know. And a woman in the audience says, what's a bungalow? He went fucking off on her. Like you can't imagine. Right. It was it's it was hilarious to watch him. Right. Hilarious. Right. Um and he could clear a room pretty much, you know. In those days, when it was two o'clock in the morning and they wanted to clear the room to get so we could all go home, yep. they'd put Gilbert on. And he would clear the room. He would clear the room. Because they'd just be staring at him like he was the strangest creature they'd ever seen. Gilbert, by the way, probably my favorite comic I ever. I love him. The funniest I love him. ever. Yeah, when Ever. he does the Gilbert's dirty jokes, there's not a lot of things that are are much funnier. Yeah, uh, he's that. brilliant. He's yeah. just brilliant. It, he could make me laugh in a visceral way that like nobody else can. So okay. anyway, so so, so, so you get a, so you get a phone call. So I get a phone call. I mean, I remember it so well. Where you know, I was like, "Hello, uh, Susie. Hi, it's LD." I was like, "Oh, hi, La. What's up?" Home cell phone. Was there a Home, cell phone? But, uh, no cell phone. Okay. And um. He said, uh, I have a part for you in this new show I'm doing for HBO. It's to play Jeff Garland's wife. And I said, well, tell me about the part. Don't worry about it. You could do it. It's a part you could do. I said, well, send me the script. There's no script. There's no script. And there's no money. It's very low budget. You got to fly yourself out and put yourself up. And this was right after he did the uh, did Seinfeld syndication deal. And I remember thinking, well, uh, 
I don't mind working for day scale, which I did for a long time on that show. Right. <laughs> but I'm not having it cost me money. So finally, you know, I called him back. I said, look, I'd love to do it because I love to work with Larry. I knew right. what a genius he was. I said, but find some money to fly me out. I'm not flying myself out. So they found some money. Okay. They flew me out in the first season. I was in three episodes. Which was 2000? Yes, 2000. Okay. I was in three episodes. We had no idea what this show was. We had no budget. We didn't have trailers. We didn't have a makeup trailer. We didn't, nothing. It was like, you know, I got a barn, let's put on a show. Um, right. I was in one episode, where, which was a real Susie episode. The other two were just kind of, I was in the background just introducing me. And then the second season, I was in only two episodes, one of which was The Doll. Um, one of my, you know, my sure. famous... Uh, and then I never knew season to season. I had no contract. I never knew season to season if I was going to be in the following season, if we were going to do a following season. And here we are, season 10. I mean, 20 years later, it's right. hard to even fathom. And you were still doing stand-up in between? Still doing stand-up, yeah. And the, after about the third season, I noticed anecdotally people stopping me in the street. Didn't happen the first two seasons. We were really under the radar. Right. But third season, I noticed made a difference. And then my price started to go up. Okay. Because I was on TV. Sure. And then I started drawing. And then I started, you know, making money as a comic. And... More money as a comic. If there is anybody out there who hasn't seen Curb Your Enthusiasm or read anything about it, there's no real script. It's no. sort of an outline. There's an outline. The outlines have gotten more dense. You could see as a viewer how dense they are this season. Um, there's about a seven to 10 page outline. And each scene has approximately a paragraph saying what happens in the scene. There's no dialogue written. Unless there's dialogue that's pertinent, I have to say something like Happy New Year or whatever right. that needs to be said for a storyline. But Larry's genius is story. Larry's all about story. And when you read the outlines, this I remember the first outline I ever read was in season one, Beloved Aunt, which was to, still to me one of the most perfectly right. uh, constructed half hours in the history of comedy. Such a brilliant episode. And I remember thinking to myself, this is genius because it was transcendent. I couldn't figure out how he got there. And I still can't. Right. You know, and everything has a callback and everything's there for a reason. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's just, he's just so brilliant at creating story. And I love now how in season 10, 20 years later, there'll be references that will go back to things that happened. Oh, yeah. You know, well, and years it's ago. because it's real life. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to work with um, one of your real heroes, I think it was season four with Mel Brooks. Uh, I think that was season four. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that was a thrill to me to work with Mel. A lot of times in this business, if you've met a million famous people and sports yeah. stars. And except, often disappointed. Often disappointed. Yeah. Often disappointed. Yeah. And I've learned you don't really want to meet your idols. But I was not disappointed in Mel at yeah, all. Yeah, that was, he some, was just that lovely. That was unbelievable. Just, the depth of the joke on the producers was yeah. just incredible. And he's just, I mean, to, to work with him, to, to be able to work. And, and, I had and no Bancroft scenes with, was alive as well then. Yes, she was. And I had no scenes with Mel, but just I was on set with him and I would go visit set a lot when he was working. Just to be right. around him was so incredibly joyous to me. Yeah, we just saw him. He did a couple nights on Broadway. Isla and I went yeah. uh, last year and he's still completely with it. Oh, he's so and funny. And razor sharp. He might be the funniest person that's ever lived. Yeah. That we know of. 
Yeah, and did you ever meet Carl Reiner? We get to work with Carl? No, but I interviewed Carl Reiner once at the 92nd Street Y, and that was kind of thrilling, too. I've yeah. met my idols. Yeah, he you know? was such a nice man, and I got to work with him. We did something at the Pantages in L.A., uh-huh. and just magic to be yeah. around him. And the yeah, his, incredible. They're, they're, you know, uh, uh, television comedy, that's those guys. You know, they so, create, I mean, he created Dick Van Dyke. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, New Rochelle. Here we are now, we're in 2020, you're in season 10 of Curb. Yeah. It's been a magical, magical ride. And you are a big star. And this year, you are, without question, the star of the season. All right, don't tell Larry But you are. (laughs) Did you know before the season that it was going to be so prominent for you this year? Is it just sort of how it unfolds? I read all the outlines ahead of time. Okay. So, you know. Uh, but I'm just basically, when I look at it, I don't really see it that way. I'm just thinking, I, I just figure days of when I have to be in LA, when I'm coming back to New York, when I'm, you know, right. how, how my, I'm figuring out my life. And you're doing a lot of other stuff yeah. as well. I know you. I know we all remember the great animated film you did several years ago, Bolt. Bolt. And then and also, I mean, last, last season while I was doing Curb, I was also doing Broad City. Right. And, uh, you know, then I was doing Bless This Mess. So yeah, yeah it was... Uh, and- it, what else is on the pot now for you? Uh, right now, I mean, just uh, something in development that I don't want to talk about it because okay. it's always kind of her poo poo poo. Um, but um, and and I'm hoping season eleven of Curb. Right, right. I right. don't know for sure, but I, it might. Right now, there were so many special guests this year, guest stars. Yeah. And over the years, you've had tremendous guest stars. Looking back over the, you know, we've seen nine and a half seasons so far. You know about the rest of season ten. We don't. Um, who do you remember that boy that 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 was I love working with that person and- well I always love working with Ted okay Ted is one of my favorites I love I mean besides the, the I, I love the core team I, I love the core team I right. love the family you know I mean one of my favorites to work with was my dear friend Bob Einstein Marty right. Funkhauser right who died last year and it was greatly missed this season I mean that was a character that you just can't replace Bobby you just can't. Yeah. He's one of the funniest people alive. And I, I just, we all missed him. I knew I was going to miss him, but we all missed him even more and, than and we thought. And he loved you. I ran into him at, yeah, at, we at were Nate very Nell close. in LA. And I went over and said, I'm a good friend of Susie. And his eyes lit up. Well, we were very close. We yeah. were very, very close. And uh, it, that was, it's just a loss. You know, it's the family. It's its me, Cheryl, Larry, Jeff, Leon, uh, Lewis, and Funkhauser. That's the family. Right. You know, I right. love working with Cheryl. Cheryl and I love working together, especially when it's us against them. Right. Um, I love working with all of them. But uh, Ted is always really fun. Um, guest stars, God, there's, there's been so many. I mean, last week I, I did a scene with Clive Owen. Who the fuck ever thought I was doing a scene with right, Clive Owen? Right. I love Clive Fantastic. Owen. I've had a crush on him for years. Right, right. That was great. And, and do the guest stars struggle with the absence of a script? Some do and some don't. It's interesting when comics usually don't. Okay. You know, because we're so ready to improvise and know how to improvise so well. But sometimes there's actor types that have a hard time with it. Clive didn't. He was terrific. I thought he was terrific. Uh, John Hamm's coming up. Okay. Uh, not this week. I think the week after. I'm not okay. sure. He was fantastic. Fantastic. That's great. That's yeah. great. And do you think there will be a season 11 or too early to tell? Um, my gut says there will be, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet the house on it. Okay. Okay. And because Larry, you know, you never know. 
You never know that, but that's always been the case with him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. And, um, you know, you've kind of, you know, your resume is, is incredible. What would you like to do that you haven't done? Do you think about that? I would like to do my own show in New York. I would like to shoot a show that I am have more creative input uh, and shoot it here in New York at okay. home. Be home. You That's like, really like home. what I would like to do now. You know, Curb. I mean, I, I don't. Ha- I have tremendous creative input because of the improvisation aspect of it. Right. Uh, but it's Larry's show, and I'm. And that's and that's all done in L.A. That's all done in LA, except right. for that we did five shows in New York. One, season eight, I believe we did five shows in New York. But um, and when we did those five shows in New York, what was interesting is New York becomes a character in a way that Los Angeles doesn't become a character. Right. You know, I remember we had that great episode, Mister Softy episode with Bill Buckner. Sure. And uh, he was fantastic, by the way. He, right. What a doll sweetheart he was right. to work with. He died this year, I yeah, think. Didn't he? Yeah, yeah, very young. And, and very I'm young. so happy that we gave him redemption. That was with Mookie Wilson and the ball. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. fantastic. So we're doing a scene in my apartment, which was a, on Central Park West, not my real apartment, my show right. apartment. And outside, you see Central Park, and it, you know, whereas outside my house in Pacific Palisades, where we shoot, you see a bush. Right. You know what I mean? It's right. like it's not a character in the way that New York is. And I'm, you know me, I'm a diehard New Yorker. Right. I love and Larry it here. also from New York, from Brooklyn. And Larry actually feels more comfortable in New York than Los Angeles, even though he's been living there all these years. Right. He likes it because he could golf year round. You sure. Know? But um, I, I just I love New York so much, and I think New York brings so much to a show, so much. Uh, depth and and uh texture to a show that i that's what i would love to do right now and i'm working on it uh part of the story that i left out about larry calling me giving me the job which is an important story because it's it's a career lesson story um so as i said earlier i was frustrated in the 90s i was working 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 nothing was happening except i was working as much as i wanted to and I did a bunch of roasts for the Friars Club. Right. Um, Danny Aiello. Uh, you did our, our now president. You gave him a good so, skewering, uh, as I recall. But so many of your businesses have disappeared, like the airlines, Trump Airlines disappeared. And, you know, I think you should make the Trump condom. And you should have your face right on the tip, embossed. And that way, at least somebody will be getting fucked by you besides your business partners. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that was pretty good. That was actually after uh, Curb. But I did a roast for um, Jerry Stiller. Okay. That was a Friars Club roast, Jerry Stiller, that was aired on Comedy Central. And uh, Jean-Pierre Trebeau, who was the executive director at the time of the Friars Club, put my name into Comedy Central to be on the roast because I had made my bones with them. And it was not easy in those days. You know, you're Alan Kings and all these old starker, Male comedians did not think you were funny as a female, especially if you were halfway decent looking. Right. You know, they were right. totally confused by you. They didn't know whether they want to laugh at you or fuck you. You know, I mean, it right. was like it was hard right. for them. It was not in their their headset. Um, but I had made my bones with them. It, many, many times I performed for free for different charitable things and benefits, etc. And they knew that I, how strong I was as a comic. And they wanted me on that roast. And Comedy Central nixed me. Comedy really? Central did not want me. 
I was too old, too female, too Jewish. For whatever reason, I was not their demographic. And the Friars Club pushed for me to be on that roast. And I was on that roast, and I killed. And roasts are hard. Sure. Those rooms are horrible, grand ballrooms with big high ceilings. Right. And Larry David saw that roast, and that's when he thought of me. He knew me, but I wasn't in front of his face. But that made you top of mind. Exactly. And that's when he thought of me to play the part of Susie in Curb, and that's when he called me. So, So my whole thing with my career has always been, you keep showing up. You just show up, show up, show up, show up, and you do your best work, and you don't think about anything else but just focusing on your work and just moving forward. And that's what I always did. And the Friars Club thing was just showing up, showing up, showing up. And that was another time I showed up and then it paid off. Fantastic. So you mentioned Larry, of course, and Mel Brooks. Looking out at, and you can go start with comedy, but beyond comedy, who out there do you say, I, you know, with you know, great minds, who, who, what are the great minds who inspire you? Who do you, who do you look at past, present, um, I was very inspired when I was coming up before I started doing stand-up by Carol Burnett mm-hmm. because that's what I thought I was going to do. Okay. I thought I was going to do that kind of sketch comedy. Right. But nobody hired me to do that. You know, I went on a million auditions for SNL and these other ones. Nobody was hiring me. And I did all these characters. But I remember in, in college, I was watching Carol Burnett with my friend Nancy Maglin, who's no longer with us, sadly. And I remember her turning to me and saying, you could do that. Uh huh. And I thought, you know what? She's right. I could do that. And she was one of those, it was one of those ding ding moments that she was one of these people that pointed out to me what I was capable of that I didn't right. necessarily see myself. Right. And still around and still sort of having a moment the last couple of years. I think yeah, well, people have really come back fantastic. around. Yeah, that was seminal. We all watched that with Tim Conway and Harvey Corman yeah. and Lyle. And they Lyle looked Wagner. like they were having so much fun. Oh yeah. And I feel like Vicky Curb Lawrence looks like still that around, in, in a way. You know, I feel like Curb looks like we're having so much fun. He sure does. It sure <laughs> does. Well, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Our guest today on Great Minds, Susie Essman. Thank you, Susie. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy. 